You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. You are tuned into the Republic Broadcasting Network, and I'm your host for this evening, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And once again, I'm joining you from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it's already the 7th of September 2012. But tonight we are traveling electronically to the west coast of the United States, where we are joined on the line tonight by Myra Sutton of the EFF, which is the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. And Myra Sutton is the International IP Coordinator for the EFF, and she works with the EFF's international team, blogging, developing campaigns, and monitoring emerging trends and developments in international intellectual property and innovation policies, which is quite a mouthful. So, Myra, it's great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, this is your first time on the program, and in fact, the first time a representative of the EFF has been on this radio program. I've talked to people from the EFF before for my website, but not for the radio program yet. So there might be some listeners out there who are unfamiliar with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the work that you're doing there. So I would direct people to EFF.org if they haven't gone there before, because there is a wealth of information on privacy issues, intellectual property, other things that are affecting people as more and more of our life is becoming online and digitized. But uh Perhaps just in the first few minutes here, you could introduce us to the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the work that you do there. Sure. So we're a digital rights organization. Um, we've been around for almost 23 years fighting for um, Internet users and technology users around the world. Um, we are consisting consisted of a sort of a diverse group of people. Um, half of us are lawyers take on cases um, in which we see uh, digital rights are being infringed upon, um, whether it's a privacy matter, a free speech matter, or an innovation matter. Um, and so we've been, uh, we've taken a lot on a lot of cases and uh, we like to credit ourselves with uh, creating some positive precedents um, in terms of digital rights uh, law. Um, we are also, um, we also have a technology group, uh, technologists um, that are developing privacy tools um, and also explain these um, often very, you know, intricate digital issues to the lawyers so that they can actually accurately describe what the stakes are um, in many of these cases. Because, you know, um, often what happens is um, if, if we're dealing with, for example, a state law, um, many of even the legislators that create these laws don't understand what's going on. So... Um, our job is to um, create good law, um, both on the domestic front and, um, and and I'm on the international team. So um, what we do is we are at um, the UN, we are at um, uh, many of these international fora to describe and to, um, I guess, influence um, good digital policy around the world. And um, as we will talk about, um, there are many trade agreements that are, um, beginning to regulate the internet um, as sort of a consequence of um, increased intellectual property law, and that's my area. We also have um, activists and policymakers who are working in privacy in the privacy space and free speech space, of course. Um, so um, 
I, I think that's about it. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. I mean, it does. Co- you do cover such a, a wide range of material there, and I can attest to the handiness of the EFF website for introducing people at large to some of these issues. Um, it's where, for example, I learned about th- tools like HTTPS Everywhere, which is one of the uh, the tools that I recommended here on the radio program last week. So uh, lots of information on all sorts of digital uh, rights concerns. And as you say, you're working specifically on the IP issue, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight as we start discussing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, one of those international trade deals which not a lot of people know about, but which has the uh, the potential to bring about some very vastly different and new regulations on the international IP front. So very important for people who are using the internet and people like myself who use it to communicate with people around the world. Some very big ramifications. Well, we're coming up against our first break, so let's take a breather. But when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Myra Sutton of EFF.org talking about the TPP. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're tuned into Corporate Report Radio, and tonight we are talking to Myra Sutton of the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We're talking specifically tonight about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, something that we've alluded to here on the broadcast before, but I want to get into in some more depth. So, Myra, let's start off just with a general introduction for people out there who are not familiar with the TPP and what it is. Let's uh, let's talk about what what is the scope of this uh, agreement and what does it really cover? So the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement is a multilateral um, trade agreement, which means it's being negotiated between many countries, um, specifically nine countries, um, and it covers everything from uh, textiles to milk to tobacco, um, and one of those chapters um, covers intellectual property, which is um, the, the, problem, the, the problematic chapter for us. Um, so... So there are two issues actually. So that's it's the intellectual property chapter that carries many of these very restrictive copyright provisions. The other problem is the fact that they are negotiating this very um, large, potentially powerful agreement um, behind closed doors, and um, none of us um, in civil society know what's actually in this agreement, um, and we wouldn't know uh, without any of these leaked texts that has been occurring um, in February two thousand eleven. Um, the entire intellectual property chapter that they were negotiating um, was leaked. Um, and, and actually, uh, a month ago, um, a chapter, uh, the proposals that the U.S. and Australia um, is pushing forward um, was also leaked. So um, it's, it's very problematic for us because they are seeking to create a very, very um, comprehensive agreement um, without anybody in civil society really participating. Um, I can go into um, more of the specifics um, in terms of the actual meetings. Um, the meetings um, have actually started today in Leesburg, Virginia, and uh, EFF will be there um, uh, this weekend and uh, we'll be monitoring um, what's going on there. Excellent. And for people who are interested, uh, the text of both of those leaked draft documents are available on the EFF website? Um, I believe so. I'll have to follow up with some links. Well, I can link. see a link to the February 2011 draft text, but mm-hmm. I don't see the latest leak, so perhaps right. not. I mean, so the problem there is that, um, you know, because it's a trade agreement and they're continuing to negotiate this text, we have um, this this chapter of this agreement, but it could be very outdated for, for as far as we know. So, um, you know, they... 
the, the U- United States Trade Representative, which is leading these negotiations, um, continue to claim that um, they are, you know, allowing us to participate in these negotiations, um, but, you know, they haven't officially released any of these texts, so there's really no really participation or transparency that's going on here. Um, so part of, so the only opportunity that civil society have to, um, I guess, talk to the delegates, um, you know, the delegates of all the countries are these, um, direct stakeholder events, which that is, that's what they call them. Um, and, uh, it pretty much consists of two things, um, a tabling event where, um, all the civil society groups and even, you know, um, private corporations like FedEx and, um, many, and even, you know, Occupy actually, um, are there and, and they sort of set up tables, sort of like a college, um, uh, a college fair, a job fair or something. It's sort of silly. And, um, we just sort of have to wait there and, and wait for the delegates to, you know, stride by our table, um, hopefully being interested in what we have to say. Um, and so that's part of it. The other half is, um, these presentations um, that we that we we need to register for both of these things, but we we must register for these presentations, and um, they uh, are an opportunity for us to sort of just speak directly at the delegates um, and to say um, explain our con- specific concerns with this agreement. Um, in San Diego, in the uh, beginning of July, uh, we had 15 minutes each to talk about our concerns. Um, this time, we only got eight minutes, and then 10 minutes. Um, they're sort of <laughs> cutting us, cutting down public participation um, every round. Um, even as you know, they write on their blog, "We are, you know, we're we're so public, we're so transparent with all this stuff." Um, but you know, it's it's really not sufficient to um, for us to talk about the extensive problems with this very powerful trade agreement. Well, let's start talking about some of those problems because, as you say, the uh, lack, uh, the leaked uh, draft texts at least give us an idea of what types of issues they're working on and what con- what uh, proposals they're considering. So, let's talk about some of the specific points in the IP chapter, the intellectual property chapter, that have you so concerned. All right. So, um, the trend, the TPP would not extend U.S. Uh, policies as much as it would for the rest of the signatory countries. That's because um, we have one um, fairly good case law that um, allows us, that protects um, and I guess pu- pushes back against the restrictions that copyright um, enacts. And two, because we have um, fairly flexible fair use. Um, and the prop, so the most latest leak that we got last month um, was related to um, what we call exceptions limitations. Exceptions limitations are exceptions to copyright, and there, these exceptions are things like education and, um, and and for libraries, things like that, that put a limit to these um, you know enforcement measures in copyright to ensure that even if material is copyrighted. Um, necessary institutions like schools can have access to such content. Um, while we were in San Diego um, in, in July, they um, they suddenly released a blog post out of nowhere that they would um, re- they would enact fair use um, into the TPP. There was no fair use in the TPP before before then, um, but um, so we, it seemed like a, it seemed like good news at first. But when we looked at the actual provision um, that they were talking about, they they call this thing um, this, the three step test. 
Um, and what this three-step test, um, to summarize, it sort of limits um, the kinds of fair use that you know other countries can enact in, in their own countries. So um, instead of each you know country being able to determine you know what kind of exceptions to copyright do we want to make so that we protect these vital institutions. Um, it sort of ties the hands of each of these countries from being able to make those determinations. So um, the U.S. is unfortunately um, pushing forward these restrictions on fair use, um, and that has a very broad um, implication for um, the many other uh, side effects of this IP provision. Um, there are more specific problems. Um, one one provision of the IP chapter regulates temporary copies. So um, when you watch a video on the Internet, um, you know, on YouTube or anything, it has to temporarily save a file on your computer so you can actually literally see it on your screen. Um, the way that the language of the TPP is written is very broad, and so there are some very, um, you know, heavy implications um, and, you know, broad interpretations that can arrive from such broad language that regulates, you know, any video that you watch on YouTube. So, um, essentially, if you watch a copyrighted video, you could be determined to have infringed on copyright, and that's um, pretty ridiculous. Um, other things, such as uh, the extension of copyright itself, so... Um, so in many of these countries, they have, you know, different varying lengths of copyright, but this trade agreement, the TPP, would um, extend it to 70 years um, in addition to what they already have, or 120 years after the publication of, of content. Um, and if you really, if you think about the underlying purpose for copyright, it's to promote creativity, to promote innovation. And when you have these copyright terms that sort of go even beyond the lifespan of an individual, you know, an individual life, um, you know, what kind of, of um, incentive is that <laughs> to, to preserve, you know, a copyright for that long? You're really just blocking out the public from being able to access content, access culture and innovation and, and technology in a lot of, in a lot of uh, situations. And, you know, um, in copyright, the point is to balance those rights, to balance the right of the individual creator or, you know, the, the innovator, um, and to protect their rights over their, their idea or their innovation so that they can feel like they are getting a return on the investment they made into this creation. Um, and the other side is the public that should have access to that idea and that technology. So when, so as of now, what's going on is, um, the rights of the copyright owner is getting stronger and stronger because, um, because frankly, uh, industry lobbyists, you know, Hollywood, music studios, um, a lot of these um, companies have a lot of money and they have a lot of lobbying power and um, they can strengthen their copyright power in, and, and, and um, shift the balance towards them much more than you know, the public can um, empower themselves to ensure that they have access to that. And so you know, our role is to make sure that that balance um, is stricken and as of now, it's very unbalanced. Unfortunately so. And you talk about the lack of public uh, input and transparency in this process. What do we know about corporate input into this uh, negotiation? Um, well, as far as we know, uh, many corporate um, lobbyists um, know what's going on. Um, for one example, 
the February round of the the yeah the February round of the TPP negotiations was um, in Beverly Hills. It was in this fancy hotel, and um, while civil society, we were actually denied um, access to even the hotel. So many of us reserved hotel rooms in the hotel where the, the uh, negotiations were happening, and we were mysteriously denied uh, reservations for those rooms. So um, on on the one hand. Unfortunately, you got cut off by the music there. We're going to have to come up, uh, take another break. We're coming up against one right now. So let's just hang on for just one second. We'll come back talking again tonight to Myra Sutton of the EFF, EFF EFF.org. I hope people will go there and check it out. There's tons of information there about the TPP. Let's take a short breather. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, friends. This is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio, and tonight we're discussing the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement and the potential, well, the potential to really regulate and start regulating the Internet on an international scale through agreements like this that are taking place uh, in negotiations that are being conducted behind closed doors and with very little public input whatsoever. So tonight we're discussing some of these issues with Myra Sutton of the EFF. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about some of the indications that there is corporate uh, input into this process, whereas we've already discussed the fact that there is very little public input. So Myra, let's let's pick up with uh, the point you were making there before the break. Right. So I was, I was telling a story about how um, in February... Um, Civil society people were denied um, hotel rooms at the the at the place where they were holding these negotiations. At the same time, the very next day, uh, the the delegates got a extensive tour of Hollywood studios <laughs> and and a cocktail hour. So you know, no doubt um, they were schmoozing and talking about you know I'm sure the agreement and and what they'd sort of like to see there. Um, and every single round, um, you know these these. Hollywood music industry folks and movie industry folks um, have been putting on these, you know, extravagant parties and things like that. So there is a lot of corporate influence there. And, you know, um, as civil society and as a nonprofit, you know, we don't have money to throw at this. So we have limited resources to really um, make an impact. And, um, you know, even sending ourselves out across the country to D.C., I'm in San Francisco, um, is is a big deal. So, you know, um, it's there is a gross imbalance in the amount of influence that um, corporate interests are playing in this um, versus the, the civil society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. There is a, a, an imbalance there, and I think it's uh, one of the worrying things. Of course, uh, the EFF does rely on the support of people out there. How do people support the EFF if they want to uh, help that work? Um, well, we have a donate page, <laughs> and um, we have several um, fundraisers. We um, we actually get a lot of funding from um, this thing called Humble Bundle. <laughs> it's it's a platform for independent game developers to um, to bundle their games and for users and, and, and consumers to pay as much as they like. And um, we are um, fortunately one of the nonprofits that are on that platform. And, you know, you can get great independent video games and also support EFF at the same time. It's called Humble Bundle. Um, so that's one way. Um, we barely get any... Uh, 
you know, funding from Google or these big, um, you know, uh, companies maybe for an event, but none for, you know, some specific cause or purpose. So we, we, um, really value um, member support. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about what the internet might look like if this type of legislation was passed in the form that we've seen in the draft texts. What would be different from the way people experience the internet now? And what are the, some of the potential dangers? Well, um, as we saw earlier this year with um, SOPA and PIPA and and maybe you've heard of ACTA, um, many of these policies would have a gross impact on the way people experience the Internet. As I said, um, the temporary copy provision could profoundly change the way people can, you know, watch um, videos on the Internet. Um, as we've seen this week um, with, you know, a lot of the coverage with the conventions and the, the Olympics even, um, we're starting to see these, actually, these robo-cops that are policing copyrighted content, and um, that has huge implications for, um, you know, free speech. If, you know, they mis- keep mistakenly taking down content because it's some, if it's in some sort of database that is uh, registered as being copyrighted, you know, um, there's no limit to, to what kind of content could be automatically shut down um, based upon what it says. So many of these technologies that are being put in place to enforce copyright um, could actually be, you know, sort of abused. And, you know, who knows, um, especially in some countries um, that, that might sign on to the TPP, um, you know, aren't maybe as democratic and, and uh, transparent as the U.S. is. And so if they start to build these um this technological infrastructure to um, police content that is being put on the internet, um, you know, they, it might, it, be, it might become very easy for them to censor political or, you know, um, religious speech um, at a whim. Um, one of the provisions of the TBP um, is very, that is very similar to the U S digital millennium copyright act and actually goes beyond the digital millennium copyright act in a way um in the way that it forces internet service providers, um, the, the company that you pay for for the internet, um, to actually be responsible for the content that you are seeing. And, um, we call those ISPs, um, we also call them internet intermediaries because they are the intermediary between you and the content. Um, and they, um, if they are forced to be responsible for what you are seeing, they will start to take, um, measures to to see what you are seeing so um there'll be things like three strikes laws so that um if they can determine that you are you know maybe uh downloading content that might be copyrighted or um whatever it is and they find Once again, sorry, we're coming up against the break there. We got cut off there by the music. So let's, again, let's regroup our senses. We're going to take another few-minute break, but we'll be right back once again talking to Myra Sudden of the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. And tonight we're talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And I will, of course, as always, put some links in the show notes for tonight's episode at corbettreport.com slash radio. Stay tuned right there. We'll be right back. It starts with you and me. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, a multinational trade agreement that threatens 
Well, to to create a number of uh, laws on an international scale, including laws on intellectual property. So tonight we're talking to Myra Sutton of the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org about some of the issues that are involved in this agreement and some of the, the potentials for a very dark future for internet and digital freedoms generally. So uh, Myra, just before the break, you were making a point about ISPs and uh, the man in the middle. Let, let's pick up from that and start talking about some of these implications. Right. So as I was saying, um, this ISP liability provision um, could force Internet service providers to um, take down content extrajudicially. So that would mean that they would determine on their own using whatever means maybe, you know, these new robo takedown uh, processes or, you know, by actually um, using your IP to monitor um, what content um you're downloading, which, you know, obviously has some huge privacy implications. Um, and, uh, and, and to determine if you are, are downloading content. And based upon those determinations, they could kick you off the internet, um, for, you know, whatever length. Um, maybe you might have to pay, um, a big fee or, you know, who knows what kind of, uh, policies that they might want to enact because, you know, they're going to do whatever it takes for them not to be, um, held accountable for your actions, and um, and that's really dangerous, you know. Um, for whatever crime that you that you might do, uh, there needs to be a third party involved. And so, if a ISP is you know held accountable to do this on their own, there's no um, balance with that, and there's no um, other uh, party to determine whether this is actually a true allegation. So um, that and that is very dangerous. And um, you know, in the U.S., we've lived with the DMCA for a long time, and um, even here with the DMCA, we've seen many um, of these provisions getting abused and taking, um, having been taking down content that is actually um, purely legitimate. And uh, the problem, the fact that I mentioned earlier that there's no fair use um, that is in these countries and the fact that that three-step um, test uh, provision will tie these countries' hands back from being able to de- determine fair use on their own, um, they will not be able to um, have fair use that allows, you know, certain videos to be shown at all. <laughs> and so, um, that's really, that's, that's censorship, um, through and through. And, uh, for example, in Chile, they passed a, um, a fairly progressive law in terms of, well, not progressive, but, um, I guess, um, balanced law that allows, um, users to make sure that they have a judicial, um, takedown notice to ensure that a judge will look at a case of infringement and determine if this is actually a legitimate case. And, um, and, and that, and that provides some security for the users, you know, and, um, without that sort of judicial oversight, um, you know, users, all of users could receive, um, thousands of these notices. And, um, you know, I, I personally don't want to be afraid <laughs> to, to look at anything that I want on the internet. And so if we all have to live in fear of infringing on copyright, um, depending on what link we click on, what video we watch, that's, you know, that is just, just going to change the, the internet and the freedom that we have with the internet in terms of the content we can, the content that we can share, the, um, the stories that we can share. And that sort of fear is, this just does not belong um, with this, you know, 
liberating technology. Exactly, and we've seen in some of the the, the precedent cases here, the the SOPA and PIPA, etc., that there's the threat of uh, prosecution for even so much as linking to copyrighted material under some of these new IP regimes. Is is there any indication of that in uh, the TPP agreement? Well, um, as I said, with the, that temporary copies provision, you know, if you happen to click on the wrong that's copyrighted and, you know, they um, interpret that provision of the TPP to mean that uh, you are not even allowed to save a temporary copy of this copyrighted video on your computer, then then sure, that, that could actually... So that would be the person clicking the link but not the person hosting that link. Then. Um, right, well, it depends. You know, these provisions are so broad that... The, the kinds of laws that they can be translated into into these into um, domestic law in each of these countries. Yes, it could be both the users, um, uh, I guess, accountability and um, the hosting providers' um, responsibility. Well, you made such an important point earlier. I think we should maybe break that down a little bit more for the listeners out there because it, it strikes me that this turns so much of uh, judicial due process on its head, whereby the mere allegation of wrongdoing is enough to elicit some sort of uh, police action of, of one sort or another police action, in quotes there, cyber police, I suppose. Uh, whereas usually you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. In this case, it seems that you're presumed guilty until you're able to prove yourself innocent. And even then, there has been sites that have been taken down um, by the authorities. And uh, even after it was proven that they were in the wrong, they basically get nothing for their uh, the, the, the time that they spent uh, down and uh, their websites have been basically destroyed. And of course, we, we can look to what's happened in Mega Upload as an even further example of this, where uh, presumably of all of the people who were hosting uh, files on that service, I'm sure there were many, many who were not infringing on copyright in any way, shape or form whatsoever, but all of their files have been confiscated by the FBI and the authorities as well. So it uh, leads to a, just an incredible overturning of what we would think of as any sort of legal due process. Why why is this treated so differently uh, to just general criminal law? Well, um, I mean, you might see those advertisements that say, you know, um, Pirating is theft, you know, and they have people breaking the cars or stealing a purse, and um, they are equating copyright with theft, and that is a fundamental problem because the fact of the matter is we have these technologies that really facilitate sharing, and um, while it's very true that many that there's a lot of copyrighted content that is being um, downloaded illegally, and um, that you know does constitute uh, some some maybe profits going to the person that created that content. But to uh, associate copyright and copyright content as property is, is a very hard stretch to make because um, theft means that you steal someone from somebody and they no longer have it. Um, but as with copyright, everybody has a copy, and so therefore it's it's a fundamentally different um, relationship to the content. Um, and so the fact is that new technology um, is going to change the way business works. And the the problem is is that Hollywood, um, Hollywood studios, music industry, um, you know. Uh, software companies, they don't want to face the fact that 
uh, we are able to share content much, uh, much more easily. And so, um, it's really up to them, I mean, in our opinion, to look at new business models to facilitate, um, you know, other profit models so that we can feel like we are purchasing content, um, that we feel like we are getting uh, a good product out of them um, without feeling like um, they are, you know, chasing after us with these over-restricted copyright policies. So um, really it's, it's these, it's these um, you know, sort of entrenched, businesses that can't look beyond um, how they've done business for years. And um, and unfortunately, they are um, going after due process um, by um, pushing for these copyright policies that are so restrictive. Unfortunately so. Well, there's another aspect of this that we haven't touched on yet that I think is important to, um, that there are provisions in some of these draft agreements that seem to uh, indicate an escalation in protection for digital locks and uh, DRM. Let's talk about that and the implications of some of these provisions. Right. So um, digital locks are um, these technolog- these uh, tools on things like DVDs or software. You might see when you you know pop in a DVD that says, Please do not copyright this. You will be charged if you, you know, if you do. Um, and they put these locks there to make sure that people don't copy and, you know, sell it on the street. And um, the problem with that is that uh, if you try to back up a a disc that you have um, rightfully purchased, um, you actually might be um, charged with copyright infringement. Um, so these digital locks can be broken. There are you know, ways of circumventing those technologies. Um, But what the TPP would do is to make the tools to break those those circumvention measures illegal. So um, one very real example, we we got, um, we have had many stories of uh, visually impaired and the blind who are trying to um, get access to content um, such as an e-book and they are trying to get an ebook to translate it into um, Braille or to audiobooks that they can listen to this book, and um, they they might be found um, uh, to be a, a, a criminal if they try to download um, uh, these tools that allow them to break these locks on these content because you know a lot of this content available to them immediately. So that's just one example of the many, many ways in which um, even though the blind is actually um, allowed to to break these digital locks for their purposes, that is law, um, but the actual tool for them to do that is illegal. So, you know, if they're blind and or, and, or visually impaired and they have their own lives going on, how are they going to be able to, you know, build this code these tools to break these digital locks um, themselves and so um, and so that's just one example of, of how these digital locks are called um, digital rights management or technological protection measures um, how, how those really restrict um, people's access to content it is uh, just an outrageous example, but one that throws into stark relief the, the type of uh, changes to the idea of property ownership that are taking place under the digital uh, rights paradigm that they're trying to shoehorn in. 
And uh, another outrageous example was that recently it was being reported that Bruce Willis was going to be suing Apple because he wanted to bequeath his iTunes music collection to his uh, his daughters or after he dies. But uh, the, the, under the terms of agreement by from the iTunes store, you're not allowed to do that. I believe that story was debunked that Bruce Willis is not considering a lawsuit against Apple. But still, it does point out that people do not own even the songs that they buy from the iTunes store. And these types of issues are uh, becoming more important as this gets hardwired into law through these agreements. But let's step back for a moment. Um, I think that we have seen, obviously, with SOPA and PIPA that people can be motivated in a huge way to to really step up and to, to speak out against these agreements, and they can influence the political process when they do so especially when there's a large uh, coordinated mass of people who are informed about the issue and passionate about it, which people are on these types of issues. But after SOPA and PIPA, there was talk of ACTA and now TPP. Unfortunately, it just seems to be a never-ending wave of these types of agreements and a war of attrition. What do you think about this? And what do you think the uh, the, the possibility of maintaining the, uh, the opposition to this in the face of such uh, relentless op- uh, op- opposition is? Well, um, you know, unfortunately, as long as these industries feel a need to protect um, the way they've been, you know, selling content, they're going to keep pumping money into putting lobbyists on the floor of Congress, into these trade negotiations, into, you know, um, WIPO, which is the World Intellectual Property Organization that deals with intellectual property um, policies around the world. They're going to be there, and they're going to be pushing for these, you know, ridiculous restrictive copyright policies um, as long as they're standing. And, um, you know, but there's a lot of hope, you know, there's, there's so many alternative business models that are popping up um, due to the fact that, uh, you know, creators are actually much more empowered because of the Internet. You know, you can you see, you know, guys like Louis C.K., the comedian, um, who sold his whole um, show directly to the users. Um, actually, DR, he said DRM-free um, and, and said, you know, guys, like, I know you really like my work, and so please, you know, give me money. I, I, I produced everything myself. I swear this isn't going to some third party. And people have a direct relationship with the artist. And so um, that is something that is unprecedented, and that is because of the Internet. And, um, and, and he made a huge amount of money, more than he ever imagined, and he actually donated some of that to charities. But, um, you know, that's, you know, one example of how um, the Internet is fundamentally changing our relationship with knowledge, with content, um, with creativity. And, you know, the, these, these entrenched businesses, I think, really recognize that threat to their business model. And instead of having, instead of trying to adapt to um, these new ways of doing things, they're um, resisting and they're kicking and screaming. And, um, and, and the way they're doing that is by, you know, um, trying to pass these laws. And, and so um, ultimately I'm very hopeful that I, that, you know, um, the, these new sorts of direct relationships between creators and, and users um, will develop and, and, and will continue to get stronger. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, these laws still exist and um, people are still, you know, getting their video shot off the Internet. Um, their, you know, privacy is being infringed upon because of these, you know, the, the hosting provider needs to watch them download content. There's all these 
um, very huge unintended consequences of these copyright laws that they do not speak of. And so it's our job to make sure that, um, you know, these, all these hundreds and thousands of people that uh, are experiencing these these awful outcomes of these copyright laws um, are representative in, in these international spaces. Exactly right. Well, you made a lot of good points there. So uh, we're coming up against the break. And so we'll wrap things up with you here, Myra. But let's just uh, direct people to the EFF again and tell them about some of the resources there on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. All right. So our main um, site is EFF.org. Um, our page on the TPP um, is www.eff.org slash issues slash TPP. And um, we also have um, a great infographic on TPP that we'd love for you to share, put on your blog. Um, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, don't know about the TPP. So, you know, tell your friends about it. Tell your grandma about it. You know, tell everyone you know about um, this very powerful trade agreement. And, you know, um, and there are other... There are many other implications of this agreement that aren't even digital rights issues. So um, there are other- there's a lot going on. Sorry, we're going to have to leave it there, Myra. We're fresh up uh, out of time and fresh uh, against the uh, break here. So we're going to have to leave it there. But Myra Sutton, EFF.org, thank you so much for your time tonight. And I hope people will check out the EFF and the excellent work that's being done there. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. There goes Myra Sutton. Once again, I hope people will go and check out EFF.org for more on these issues. We'll be right back after this break. I'm sick of this damn noise, the paranoid android poised at the edge of the precipice. Sanity is gradually. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Of course, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio tonight. We've been talking to Myra Sutton of the EFF about the Trans Pacific Partnership Agreement and some of the potential implications for international intellectual property law that come along with that. And there's a lot to go through. So, again, I hope people will check into the resources that I'll post up at CorbettReport.com slash radio after tonight's broadcast airs with links to some of the documents that you can use to get more information about this. And of course, the next round of TPP talks is taking place as we speak in Leesburg, Virginia right now from uh, today until the 15th of September. So more information will be coming out on this and we'll be keeping our eye on it. I'd just like to stress something that uh, Myra is pointing out there that I think we have to start thinking about a non-copyright paradigm and how we can help to build that up by supporting artists like Louis C.K. and others out there who are doing work and selling it directly to customers and completely bypassing this whole copyright paradigm. I think that is really the future, and we have to think about ways to uh, basically stop buying the Hollywood garbage that uh, that unfortunately we don't need and uh, unfortunately is being propped up by our own dollars. I think once again, we vote with our dollars, and that's what's going to make the difference at the end of the day. But of course, we have to be aware of this new intellectual property rights regime that they are trying to slot in. But uh, we have a caller waiting on the line, so let's go to him just before the end of the program here. We have Vince in New Jersey. Vince, thanks for your call tonight. Mr. Corbett, hi, sir. I'm a new listener. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I know you're almost out of time. I'm sorry uh crammed this in at the last minute, but I wanted to share an update with you. Go ahead. Um, well, um, could I give out a, a blog site so that you, you and your listeners can check out what I'm going to say to sure. you? Sure, go ahead. Because I certainly don't want anyone to take my word for it. Uh, the blog is Help Stop the 9-11 Cover-Up. It's all one word with the numerals 9-11. Help Stop the 9-11 Cover-Up.blogspot.com. 
Um, I'm just still working on it. But what I posted, uh, what I learned in the last uh, four or five days or so, was that I the Freedom of Information request that I filed with the FBI, well, actually the Armed Forces Medical Examiner's Office, forwarded my request to the FBI because I had you know, heard, like most of us did, that Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon and the plane vaporized. So I wanted to know how could there be an autopsy report if the passengers, if there were no bodies to to uh, to examine because the plane and, and the contents, all the contents vaporized. So I sent a FOIA request to the Air For uh, Armed, Medical, Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, and they responded saying they don't release autopsy reports uh, and please, uh, we defer your request to the FBI. Please consult with the FBI. So the FBI responds, we're not going to release them. It's a matter of privacy. Um, your appeal is denied, but they gave me 60 days to appeal. This is the standard uh, FOIA process. What I learned last week, last Friday, was that the FBI closed my case and did not bother telling me. You used to be able to call a FOIA officer, and he or she would give you an update. Now you just punch in your uh, case number online, and it tells you where you are. It's, elect it's, it's electronic now as opposed to you, you burdening them and talking to an officer over the phone. So I found out online that my case was closed. I called a few days ago. We played phone tag with the FBI uh, records officer. They finally called back, leave me a message confirming that my case is closed. This is highly unusual. Never in three years has my case been closed without the FBI telling me in the letter. The letter just said my case, my request was denied and I had 60 days to appeal it. So they closed my case behind my back. Well, Very unfortunately, yeah, unusual, but perhaps not surprising. I know in the past the FBI has attempted to rule that all of their 9-11 records are off limits to FOIA requests. They've attempted to make that argument in court because it's national security. So um, I sh can't right. say it's surprising, but it is uh, sad. I hope people will check into that website to take a look at that. I know they have pictures of some of the bodies that uh, in the Pentagon or allegedly in the Pentagon, but uh, online but uh, I'm not sure where that came from or how we can determine if they won't show us any of the details about that data. So I salute you for the FOIA request. But Vince, we're going to have to leave it there. We are fresh out of time. So once again, this is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. No problem. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Vince, for your call. And I'm going to be here 23 hours from now, tomorrow night, to talk to you all again. Once again, talking to Grant Smith of IRMEP. So I hope you'll join me for that conversation. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.